Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's EOA Better Together webinar. This is the seventh webinar in this series, and you're very welcome. I'm delighted that this week we're going to be covering the topic of trust and transparency in communications during a crisis, which, of course, um, is something that employer-owned businesses are renowned at demonstrating. Um, however, before we start and before I introduce our speakers this morning, let me just uh, reflect, as I usually do, on what's been happening this week in the wider world, um, where the government have been offering support and what we've been hearing from uh, our members. So I want to start with the furlough scheme. Uh, I think we've estimated now uh, from anecdotal evidence and our engagement with employee owners and businesses that approximately um, three quarters of our members are utilising the job retention scheme. Uh, and you will have read like I did this week that that means about six million workers across the UK and about 800,000 businesses are currently uh, using that scheme. Now, quite rightly, the, the, the Chancellor and the government are starting to talk about how do they taper down that scheme um, as they encourage more businesses back to work. And, and that could be anything from reducing the 80% cap. Um, the 80% down, it could be reducing uh, the cap down from two and a half thousand pounds, or it could be some sort of partial release of um, the scheme so that uh, you can bring employees back into the workplace on a part time basis. I suspect we'll hear more about that next week. Uh, there's clearly a huge um, responsibility on the government. I think the estimate I saw this week is that currently the first three months of furlough will have cost the nation around £42 billion. Um, the second uh, point I wanted to make was on the bounce back scheme. So this is this scheme for smaller businesses, um, or sorry, it's for a scheme for smaller loans. So any loan up to £50,000. This was launched on Monday the 27th um, and was intended to fill a gap of smaller businesses in particular who maybe didn't want to access the civil scheme. Uh, the, the FT reported this Monday that... Um, £3.3 billion worth of applications have been received on the first day from about 110,000 businesses. So clearly highly needed um, and um, as much as I've read uh, as of this morning, uh, those loans are getting straight out to businesses within 48 hours. The Sybil scheme, the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme, um, has increased again this week. The stats this morning from UK Finance show that um, 39,000 successful applications have been approved um, and that totals around five and a half billion pounds. Um, there are 62 and a half thousand total applications. So there's probably another 30 odd thousand um, businesses who are likely to have approvals in the next few weeks. And it's interesting, again, that the British Business Bank have um, approved nine more lenders this week. Um, so that's now about 63 different lenders are able to offer the business interruption loan scheme. Um, and I was delighted this week to notice that social investment business are now offering um, loans through that scheme, particularly to social enterprises and charities, which is an important part of the economy. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk about was just to update you on a couple of member stories. Um, we keep looking out for these. If you've got a story of things you've been doing uh, to innovate around the crisis, then please do let us know. 
Um, Catalyst Choices is one of our members based over in the Northwest. I was delighted to hear this week that they have opened um, a new step down facility uh, for COVID-19 patients in Liverpool um, in collaboration with the local authority there. They provide personalised care um, to people in the community. So that's a great initiative. They've taken a um, a mothballed facility and brought it back into life for the, that step-down care that's needed. Um, and also a business, um, Westco Tech, um, who are involved in um, smart city um, and vehicle activation signage. Um, they're now distributing a new solar-powered hand sanitising unit, which is all about creating not just smart cities, but also safe cities. So two great stories there of um, innovation. Um, and lastly, just to remind you all, um, it was in our weekly newsletter this week about the CBI survey. So we published on Monday the link to the service sector survey and next Monday we'll be publishing that again, plus a survey for um, manufacturing and distribution. Uh, really important that your voice is heard in, in the debate currently around how businesses are being affected by the crisis. So if you haven't seen those links, please look at last week's or this week's community news, look at next week's and have your voice heard. And there is one other survey that we've also circulated, which is a survey asking you for your views of what your requirements might be moving forwards for PPE. Uh, difficult to predict, I know, if you're not quite clear what the government are going to ask you to do in your workplace, but please do look at that survey. The deadline for it is Wednesday. Um, it's on our website, I believe, on our Twitter feed. Um, you can get access to it there. So there's a bit of a roundup of this week. I'm now going to move to this morning's um, webinar. I'm absolutely delighted. Once again, we've got three panellists, um, all drawn from the employer and sector. So they're all experts in the field of employer ownership um, who are going to share their insights, their views, their experiences. We want to hear your thoughts on all of this. So if you want to offer a question or a view, then please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Um, if you have any technical problems, use the chat function and Annabelle, who is supporting us today, will be able to help. Um, and the webinar is being recorded. So if you miss anything or you have to leave the room, deal with a barking dog, a small child or, or a postman, um, then you can always catch up later on. So let's kick off. Um, I'm delighted, first of all, to welcome Simon Poole. Simon is the Managing Director of Gerber Campervans, based in Scotland, um, an employer-owned business and a proud member of the EOA. Good morning, Simon. Nice to see morning, you. Deb. Good morning, Deb. Um, and Simon's going to talk us through some of the actions that he and his team have taken in dealing with this crisis so far. So over to you, Simon. Okay, thank you, Deb. Good morning to everybody. Um, as Deb said, my name's Simon Poole. I'm the marketing director of, sorry, managing director of Gerber Campervans. Um, I started the business with my partner, Kath, back in 2006. We now employ 14 people, including ourselves. Uh, last year, we turned over three million pounds. Um, what do we do? It's all in the name. We basically manufacture uh, campervans. We're an approved converter for Volkswagen. Um, our route to employee ownership in 2018, January 2018, we transferred all our shares uh, that we held in the business, 100% of them, into uh, an employee ownership trust, and we became entirely employee-owned. Um, we 
worked a deferred consideration plan for uh, allowing us to, to uh, take some value from the business. And we initially did that over a five year period, but at the moment, obviously that's under review because clearly the situation we're, we're all in now you know, may well affect that. Uh, currently, all our staff are furloughed, and myself and my partner, Kath, are just, just keeping the business ticking over. When Deb asked me to talk about trust and transparency, and I, and I, I do believe we've, we've got a very strong level of trust in our business, I had a quick think and thought, well, actually, how do you, how do you get trust? Where does trust come from? So I, I then put it into three, three basic points, and I thought the first one was, if you do the right things in the first place, then people will trust you. So for instance, our highest to lowest pay ratio is, is less than three. And I think that's a fundamentally a, a very good sort of example and position to start from. The next thing was you have to tell people about, it. you have to tell employees that, but you have to tell your employees in the right way and at the right time. So maybe unusual for some businesses, but employees know all the accounts for the business. They know my salary. Uh, they know the, the deferred consideration value that we're receiving. So we've been very open and very honest, and that I believe has created a, a, a large amount of trust between us and the employees. And we also really do listen to employees and we act upon their ideas and, and their input. So we've got a, a, a very strong two-way relationship. And I think that's helped us enormously getting through uh, COVID-19. So looking at COVID-19, what do we do? Well, we prepared for the lockdown before it happened. So I'm an avid news reader and junkie of, of, of looking at news from all over the world. And I was pretty sure we were, something was going to happen. We were going to go into lockdown. So a couple of staff who we felt were vulnerable, had vulnerable partners, we, we sent home back in uh, the middle of March. Um, a couple of people who, who were showing symptoms of, of illness, we, we sent them home on full pay. Um, we talked to our employees about the, the financial situation within the business and we reassured them that the business was cash healthy and we could, we could see our way through this. So we were open with them and we concentrated on maximizing cash at that point. Uh, we stopped a couple of capital projects, we sold a couple of things, items which are of good capital value vans that we were going to sell later. So we made sure we had cash in the bank. Um, and what have we done since then? Well, I, I think we, we initially were in a, just a reassuring phase for the first, the first four weeks. So we guaranteed everybody their 20% uh, of the wage on top of the furlough. So nobody was going to be financially hard up. Um, again, we reassured people that the business was not in jeopardy. So, so everybody was absolutely comfortable with that. We created a WhatsApp group, which initially was... Uh, for the first four weeks, more just keeping morale up, idle chit chat, daft photos, backs and forwards between employees and just keeping communication going and keeping people talking. Um, and we also at that stage communicated with suppliers and where I had particular suppliers who were doing small bespoke products, we made sure that we paid them immediately and some of them we actually said, if you want to keep producing for us now, we'll pay you in advance and we'll allow you to, to keep producing as much as you can. So we were really helping them with our cash position. Uh, where are we now? Well, we're in a, as everybody is, a, a sort of a planning stage of what happens next. And we are consulting all the time. We're talking to our employees. We send them weekly WhatsApps, looking at uh, what the government's latest position is. And that's hard. I don't want to overload them with information and it's got to be good information. So we give information to them, but not, not too much. And then working with trustees and working with senior managers we're building up plans and and ideas on on how we'll go back to work what it'll look like and then 
what the next three, six months, 12 months might look like. Um, we have a Zoom meeting planned quite soon with all staff, but we can put that across and we'll be talking to them and asking for their opinions. And once we come up with a plan, we'll be talking individually to every staff member because different people will have different reasons why they may not be able to come back to work. Again, we have to, we have to treat everybody as an individual. So looking to the next three to six months, what do we want to do? Well, create a safe workplace, that's number one, to make sure that all staff have regular financial updates What's the situation with the business? What's the order book? What's our cash position? And, and the staff know what our cash position is. They know what our reserves are. They, they, know, uh, they know how we are fancy, which is, I think is really important. And also working with them to explain the benefits of the furlough scheme, not just now in financing the, the salaries as we are, but also looking into the future and seeing how it might help us in cushioning our return to work and ensuring that we don't eat into our order book really, really quickly and then have no orders. So we have to, we have to make sure people understand that if not everybody's brought back, it, we're not picking on people, it's helping the business in the long term. And a good example of trust, we've already had staff, and I would say more than half the staff have said to us that if needed, we'll work extra hours free of charge. They don't want to, don't want to be paid for it. And also will forego the holidays proportionally that they would have taken or would have been allocated to them over the lockdown time. So I think that just shows that's come from them to us. And lessons I've learned, well, I think if you build trust over the longer term by being open, by being honest and by doing the right thing, then your employees will stand by you in times of crisis. Thanks, Simon. That, um, that final message, I think, will probably resonate with everyone who is currently leading an employer-owned business. That investment in the past will reap benefits in times of difficulty as we're all facing now. So thank you very much. Um, okay, I'm not going to put any questions to you yet because I'm going to move on to our next panellist this morning. Um, and this is Rob Knight. Rob is Finance Director at Scott Barder. He's also one of um, the EOA board members. So good morning, Rob. Uh, you're very welcome. Joining us from Northamptonshire, I think, this morning. Sunny Northamptonshire, I hope. I think the whole country's sunny. It's beautiful today, definitely. Good, good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, much the same. I'm going to leave the, the, the floor for you now uh, to tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in a, a very different business to Gerber Campervans. Great, thank you. Um, a little about um, Scott Barter first. Uh, we're a manufacturer of chemicals and adhesives, uh, long established, um, establishing our trusteeship in 1951. We have a global presence uh, with six manufacturing sites, uh, three in Europe, um, Canada, South Africa and Dubai, uh, plus sales offices elsewhere. Uh, the UK operations are based, as Deb said, in the village of Wollaston, which is in Northamptonshire, uh, where I'm the UK FD. Um, this gives us a geographic complexity and also a strength from that. Um, we also have a further overlay of uh, geography for both supply chains and customers. Um, well, let's reflect on our resilience. So before we dive into our COVID story, we'd like to highlight some of the things that, the factors that give us strength and what we can draw from. So in this or any other challenge, um, the business operates with a strong uh, culture and founding values, uh, working in a spirit of partnership uh, that feeds openness and hopefully trust. With a key guiding principle of ensuring a sustainable business. Um, and then overlaying that, in recent weeks, my mantra has been customer cash control. 
um, to try and inform those three principles to what decision we've been making short term and medium term. And additionally, we shouldn't forget care to the colleagues and to others, um, which is difficult for most of us working in, in new and novel situations. So our COVID journey has been um, different in different places, with sites like the UK kept open as a critical industry, um, whilst others in Canada and South Africa have been forced to temporarily close by the authorities. In the UK, there have been We've, our journey has been through several phases. Um, in the first phase, those colleagues who could work from home were encouraged to do so. For many, this was simply fewer days in the office. At that time, we also identified vulnerable colleagues and their families and giving them the opportunity to work from home, many from the first time. Um, we needed to provide an IT package and practical support. Um, to encourage that they could do that work um, during that phase. As the government advice changed, we entered the second phase where anybody who could work from home was then instructed to do so. Um, this put additional challenge on our IT and telephony infrastructures and meant such things as using desktops from home for the first time. Um, and as the government furlough scheme developed um, and our workloads became impacted, then initially 10% of our workforce was um, furloughed. And in the last couple of weeks, that's reached 30%. Uh, we are now in the planning phase of what reopening looks like with social distancing. So customers, I mentioned earlier that we work in partnership. Uh, early on, we, co we concentrated our efforts on understanding our customers' needs, who would remain open, and particularly who was actually supplying into critical end users. Um, with, very, with different industries and geographies impacting very diverse ways. Um, to coordinate this, colleagues from different departments were receiving different parts of the jigsaw. So we developed a common uh, reporting suite, giving wider visibility, and allowing colleagues, many of who are now isolating, to have a relatively good overview of the, the emerging and changing picture. Secondly, we contact our customers, uh, recognising everyone's focus on cash, asking them to talk to us um, if they needed a payment plan or other support. Um, and as a quick aside, we also have some office space available for rent for startups, um, which we've decided to give those um, companies a rent holiday and other support if needed. And we are now entering the, a new phase trying to understand um, how our customers' startup plans will um, develop. The other side of the fence is suppliers, and thankfully we did uh, work um, to, understand and to understand our critical supply chain, allowing the teams to manage the supply during many difficult um, uh, changes and restrictions. As a demand declined and changed, there has been a constant requirement to plan, replan, and then plan again, and that dialogue has allowed us to clarify the changing picture and shape of the business, however impact, imperfect the information was at the time. Um, at the beginning, uh, we paid special attention to our very small suppliers, the window cleaner, the taxi drivers, uh, to ensure that their payments were processed um, before we knew they were going to close. Uh, for the small medium suppliers, we have made a commitment to continue to pay to terms. Um, 
We're now currently wrestling with the added complexity of colleagues working from home and, or are available under furlough when we're processing invoices and dealing with queries. Uh, we also have to deal with the com geographic complexity of the timing of restrictions being lifted in different places and when supply can restart from different, um, place, different um, locations. And that's an emerging picture and a challenge that we need to understand and keep abreast of. And then moving forward, um, in amongst our strategic reviews, I'd like to pull out three threads um, that may be of interest. Uh, so colleague care. So supporting colleagues in these uncertain times is a critical challenge that we all must rise to, I think. Uh, communication with scattered teams is challenging. Um, we should not forget the social side of work. So we encourage WhatsApp groups, virtual spaces, and silly team quizzes to keep people together. Further on top of our normal support packages, we've extended our welfare loans and our hardship fund is now operational, supporting colleagues adjusting to changing household incomes. Uh, second place is our engineering shutdown. Usually it's a summer maintenance window and this has been brought forward at very short notice to um, go into the furloughed areas. That should give us greater flexibility um, later on in this, as the, as the um, process evolves and we also can address some of the social distancing challenges in those places. Um, I should credit the teams involved in actually pulling that um, workload forward so quickly. And finally opportunities. Um, we do produce industrial thickeners um, and when the need for hand gels exploded many came forward providing the alcohol side of it but they needed a thickener to make the um, product work. So within a matter of days, we modified, tested, and scaled up a new product, a process that normally takes months. And now we're supplying that um, into the um, critical areas. That plant is now much busier than usual, which is a pleasing response from start to finish and what we're doing for the, uh, the initiative. And to summarize, for me, it's flexibility, trust and communication are even more relevant than now than in our journey ahead. Thank you. Thanks Rob, um, that was great and it's good to hear both you and Simon talking about uh, trust not just with employees but building that trust with customers and with suppliers as well so thank you very much for that um, and I'm now delighted to invite our third panellist uh, Andy Harrison, morning Andy um, Andy is partner with Co-Ownership Solutions. Uh, they are one of the EOA specialist advisors. Uh, Andy's an expert in employee ownership, has been advising businesses on the transition into employee ownership for a long while. And he's also a trustee director on a number of his clients' trusts. So you're very welcome, Andy. I know you're going to have some reflections on what you've heard, but also you're going to share some very practical um, findings from your experiences in a number of businesses. Thanks very much, Deb. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm going to try and rattle through this because I've already been warned by Deb not to go over my allotted time. Um, my name is Andrew Harrison. I'm a partner with Conership Solutions. We're one of the EOA specialist advisors, and my day is typically spent helping companies looking to become employee-owned. Um, I've actually worked in the employee-owned sector for around about 20 years now. Uh, I've helped a lot of companies become employee-owned, and I also operate as an independent trustee with employee-owned companies uh, in England, Scotland, and Wales. 
what I wanted to do this morning is to give some practical examples of what some of my clients are doing to communicate with their employees and customers um, uh, and, and hopefully give you some practical takeaways. Um, I think one of the things I'd like to start with is by making the point that the examples from Simon, some of those that are going to follow, I believe are arguably due to the culture already in place within an organisation that have been preserved by the move to employee ownership rather than necessarily uh, resulting from employee ownership per se. Um, I can't prove this, but I think there is a very, very strong argument that when you look at good businesses, you will tend to find that lots of employee-owned businesses were good businesses and employee ownership was chosen because it was a way of cementing the ethos and the way that the company operated into the long term. I think we're in this great situation where we have lots of good employee-owned businesses with a lot of involvement from uh, owners of the business who've always acted in a very ethical kind of way. Um, the situation I see across my client base at the moment is, is that there are lots of very, very good effective leaders who are often the ex-owners of the business who are thoroughly decent people and have always done right by the employees and continue to do so now but given that legitimacy of the fact that the company is employee owned uh, and I think hopefully that goes to the points raised by Simon um, uh, and the, the methods that he's employed through Gerber and Rob's comments about the adherence to values within Scott Barder and um, anyway I want to go on to the practical advice and um, one of the things that um, uh, we all know is regular communication with employees is an essential ingredient of employee ownership and I think it's probably fair to say we all know that some firms do it far better than others and um, quite often what I find is companies that move into employee ownership find it a little bit difficult to decide what it is they're going to communicate and, and how regularly they're going to do it um, actually interestingly what I've witnessed through the uh, the onset of this pandemic is that naturally lots of businesses have realized that they need to be consistent in, and clear in the communication that they give to employees but they've actually started to do that uh, sharing of information with people naturally rather than perhaps being prompted by people like me in a position as a, as a trustee. And I think one of the other crucial aspects that I've identified is that in terms of that building up of trust, it's actually been around messages about trying to, as much as possible, reduce the fears that employees might have about whether they're going to have a job, whether they're going to get paid, um, whether there's going to be mass changes to the way that they operate. And I appreciate that's obviously um, uh, easier for some businesses than others but I do think it is it's it's for me it's uh, it's great news that companies have actively started to communicate with people and not just focus on numbers but also focus on trying to reduce people's fears um, I think it's probably fair to say everybody's now a professional user of, of, of zoom and teams uh, these are great ways obviously of being able to communicate with large numbers of people I've also seen quite a lot of companies that are using things like whatsapp groups uh, Yammer and Trello as way, ways of being able to communicate with employees on operational matters and um, what I want to do now, though, I've got four points that I want to make, and this is more about focusing on the overarching communication that businesses do in order to build trust around the employee-owned entity rather than perhaps looking at operational information. Um, I want to start with the importance of setting the scene in context of what, what is happening within businesses. And what I mean by this is I have a company that's been employee-owned now for around about seven months. They've got about 30 employees. Uh, there's always been a commitment to communicate with the employees, but um, there's not necessarily been an agreement between the trust board uh, the employees and the board of directors about what that communication might look like and interestingly from the onset of the uh, of, of the pandemic one of the things the board of directors very quickly did was realize the need to consistently and quickly communicate with the employees and they put together what I think is genuinely a fabulous weekly newsletter. And what that weekly newsletter does is details the financial position of the company, uh, the amount of cash that the business has got in the bank, the reasons as to why it's important to have so much cash in the bank, the reason why it's important to try 
try to invoice people on a pro forma basis rather than giving them lots of time to pay. Uh, there's also a focus on what's happening globally around the world in terms of the pandemic and whether or not it seems to be increasing or decreasing. Uh, there's some good news stories as well around what's happening in the world alongside what's happening within the business. But there's also a big focus on the welfare of employees. The company pays for a counsellor service to an outside body and there's a big encouragement for employees to think about using that if they need to and also about talking to their colleagues if they need to have any discussions with anybody just uh, just basically to feel less anxious about what's happening. Um, there's also a really good uh, I suppose funny section which is more about what employees on furlough are doing so there's lots of pictures of, uh, of people gardening and some quite frankly truly awful pictures of um, uh, some sandal and socks combinations. Um, the last point I want to make about that specific company is at the end of the newsletter it basically says we are being as honest and open as we possibly can be but we're in an evolving situation uh, and effectively the message that I get from that is we want you to trust that we're trying to do the right thing and we want you to know that our focus is exactly the same as yours but it may well be that things change just because of the nature of the situation we find ourselves in. Second point I want to make is that uh, it's not just employee owners who are affected by this. All I mean by this is that we've obviously got families um, uh, of, of employee-owned um, uh, companies and its members. I have a company based in South Wales. They've had to uh, furlough around about 50% of their staff because they're in an operational facility where they can't uh, operate at the normal capacity. One of the things that they've started to do when they did very early on was again another weekly uh, um, uh, update but this email is, is uh, sorry this update is emailed out to members uh, of, of the team um, but there's a big message around share this information with your family and primarily what that's about is saying at some stage we're all going to come back to work we know that you'll all have fears around the environment that you're going to enter back into in terms of safety in terms of the, the, the possibility of spread in terms of the possibility of taking it home and we want to give you as much assurance as we possibly can that we're doing everything right and if you or any of your family members have got any concerns we want to hear from you the last thing that that company did which is not strictly speaking communication but i think uh, hopefully highlights one of the, the ways that companies can think about building up trust is the board took a decision very early on that they wanted to pay people a month in advance and that was so that people would have assurance that they would be able to put food on the table be able to pay their bills and wouldn't be in a situation where they would be constantly panicking about basically being able to make ends meet i appreciate that not everybody can do that but i think it's a phenomenal example of, of a company taking a step they didn't have to do in order to be able to try and build up trust and the third point i want to make is that not all communication with employees needs to be work related uh, there's another firm i work with who've been employee-owned now for around about four years they've got just under 50 employees business is hopefully going to be safe from a commercial perspective going forward and I think that fact is well understood by the employees because of the general communication that's taken place um, but the reality is, is they tended to work in a very close-knit environment so in an office environment where people would speak to each other on a very regular basis and now obviously people are being forced to be at home and, and there's a fear of isolation so one of the th things that the board did very early on and did this in consultation with the employee bodies was a, uh, a weekly welfare call. So effectively, each of the six directors will make sure that they speak to uh, uh, one of the employee owners at least once a week. And it's not to talk about work related things. It's to just make sure that the employees uh, are, are feeling comfortable and if they've got anything that they're struggling with or if they just want to have a chat with somebody so that they don't feel isolated, they feel as though they're being cared about. The last point I want to make about that company is, is they have furloughed staff, not because the business is any um, um, uh, difficult position, but because it was important to try and preserve cash if, uh, if at all possible. But what they've made sure they've done is they've said to all of the employees that have been furloughed and to everybody else, the fact that you're furloughed is not because we're at grave risk as a company. And 
it also is not a precursor to any of you being made redundant. And if there were a redundancy process, which we're not planning for, you would not be first in the queue just because you were put onto furlough. The furlough was made for good, sound commercial decisions, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be first there. All of this has been about making sure that they mitigate and, uh, and reduce any fear that people might have. The last point that I want to make is sometimes there is no good news, but that doesn't mean that you stop communicating and it doesn't mean that because there's no good news that fairness has to then cease. I work with a really tremendous employee-owned company on the west coast of Scotland who have been incredibly affected by the pandemic. Uh, they have around about 170 employees, 164 of them were put on furlough in early March. Uh, their business has been forced to shut because they're in the hospitality industry, so they had no choice. This was a legislative requirement. It was also something they would have done anyway out of a sense of needing to make sure that they acted fairly for their employees and customer base but that business is now in a, in a very very difficult situation it may not open until sometime in October and I'm sure you can appreciate the level of working capital commitment that that uh, takes means that that business is going to face some very very difficult times ahead the focus has been on trying to be as honest as possible with employees through communications, through things like Yammer and, uh, and other internal methods that they've got to make sure that people are aware of the situation the company faces, but equally try to do that in a way that you don't panic everybody into thinking there will definitely be no job to come back to. And I think this is quite a difficult balance to actually uh, meet being honest with people without scaring everybody and making them believe that there is going to be no job to come back to. Um, because the employees in that company can't physically meet, uh, what the company's been doing is they've been using things like Yammer and other systems to be able to share good news stories, to be able to train people, to share industry news and publications with them, uh, share recipes, hold weekly quizzes, anything they can possibly do to try and continue the sense of community that they had amongst the employee base within that company. And the last example I want to give specifically to that company is you might recall when the uh, when the crisis started, there was a story of a hotel in Scotland owned by the Britannia Hotels Group where they made all of the staff redundant and those that were living in staff accommodation were effectively given 24 hours to vacate their staff accommodation. Um, this particular company that I work with has probably in the region of about 70 people that typically live in staff accommodation and they would have been well within their rights to have taken that same kind of approach, i.e. we don't want to carry the cost of you living here, so we're going to boot you out of your staff accommodation. That's never going to be an approach that you would hope an employee-owned company would take. And certainly for this specific company, it's never an approach they would have ever have taken. And what they actually did was said to people, if you can make it back to the mainland, if you can make it back to your homes, then obviously we would like you to do that because there's a cost implication of continuing to run the staff accommodation. But for those of you that you can't do that, you can stay here for as long as you need to. We will do everything we possibly can to provide for you and make sure that you're looked after. That also in itself creates issues in the sense of in terms of being able to contact and keep in communication with those people they can't just turn up and knock on the door and ask how people are but they made a decision that what they wanted to do is they wanted to care for people because that's the way their business is and i go back to my point earlier on it's because the people that started and are still involved in that business are thoroughly decent people and in my view what employee ownership has done has allowed them to continue in that vein um, i think the last thing that I, I would finish on uh, is to say this we hear and read comments about how bad practice is going to be judged after the pandemic passes my view is that employee owned companies through what they do now will end up being seen as trustworthy by employees prospective employees customers and suppliers and that will give competitive advantage in the long term uh, and i think that's why it's really important that companies do what they can to continue to build trust 
Brilliant. Thank you, Andy. That's really helpful. Lots of uh, tips there, I think. Um, I was writing quite a few things down. I'm sure other people will have been. So I'd like to welcome um, Rob and Simon back now. Um, uh, we've had some questions coming in, so um, I'm going to do a bit of a quick fire on the questions. I hope you don't mind. Um, Rob, do you want to just um, unmute yourself so that um, if I fire one at you, you're ready to go? Um, <laughs> So we've had a question from Laura, um, which is about communications, unsurprisingly, um, asking um, so how much responsibility do directors have to communicate regularly and um, what does regularly look like? So um, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Um, Rob, what's the responsibility of directors at Scott Barder to communicate? Um, so Group MD uh, communicates on a weekly basis and then behind that the HR team run a series of comms that are directed at individual departments or teams. So it is both. So it's senior level and it's regular? Yes. Okay. Uh, Simon? Um, much smaller business, most communication is just done verbally um, and we don't have a sort of particular, you know, put in place regular communication as in something written I guess at the moment we're using WhatsApp, I would just tend to say, don't say anything unless you've got something to say, because you can over-communicate, you can tell people things just for the sake of having to do something every week, uh, and you start to lose their attention unless you've got something you really need to tell them. Andy, you made the comment about um, communicate even when there's no good news. Um, so how much communication is, you know, how much information is too much? Is, is there a risk of scaring people? Um, I think as Simon alluded to. Yeah, I think there is, but if I'm just looking at Laura's question now, if the company's on a roadmap to employee ownership, so that's, that's the end destination that they want to aim for. My view would be is you need to make sure that you're communicating with the employee owners now, because if they know your intention is to become employee owned and you're not going to communicate with them at this point, I think for me, all it would do is it would worry me as an employee that when the company does become employee owned, there was never any intention to communicate through these really difficult times. Why would that change in the future? I think you have to be careful that you don't scare the horses, but that doesn't mean that you can't try and give people as much information as you possibly can. Um, if I go back to one of the previous examples I gave, um, the, the first example, the company on that newsletter saying we are being as honest as we possibly can be with you, but the situation is evolving. I think everybody understands that. We're not in a scenario where we can consult and communicate, uh, perhaps to the extent that we would previously have liked to, but I think not to communicate at all and, and, and arguably keep information from people is, is, is equally not the right thing to do. So when it comes to external communication, so not employees, but with clients particularly and with suppliers, how do you communicate and retain the sort of brand equity and the reputation of the brand? I mean, what, what's the danger there of sharing too much? I mean, from a Scott Barder perspective with that global footprint, Rob, has there been consideration in the business about refining the messages dependent on who you're speaking to? Well, definitely, because we've got each different territory has had a different impact. So for some sites, it'll be, we're closed. This is our our plans going forward. Others, where we're scrambling to get um, production through. It's been a different um, different message. Um, we're doing it through partnerships, as I said earlier. So it's having a regular dialogue of your um, key accounts with your, your customer base, but also sending out generic uh, communication saying, if you've got a problem with this, please contact Blah, and then they'll then pick the phone up and talk to us. And it's getting the balance right between specific targeted conversations where people are busy and making sure we are supporting them rather than causing them problems, 
and also reaching out saying, if you've got a challenge, this is the communication channel that's most effective for you. And then the balance between the two, geographically, has sort of kept us um, going so far. Simon, have you considered corporate reputation at all in your communications and the level of transparency that you might therefore be willing to um, use? I think with, certainly with smaller supplies, the biggest supplies, I, I guess you're not doing at a personal level. So with smaller supplies, I think I mentioned before, particularly ones that do bespoke items for us. You know, I'm on very good terms with most of the, at least sort of the owners, if you like, or the, or the directors of those businesses. And, you know, I've been very upfront with them saying, look, we have got in our bank, I'm not talking exactly how much, but we've got a, a plentiful cash supply to support ourselves. So you're confident, you know, that we're going to continue as a business. And also we can help you. So if you can produce products for us during, during lockdown, I'm very happy to pay for them straight away to not pay them at 30 days if it's going to help them out as well. So we've paid some bills, in fact, early for products we haven't had yet. And that might sound ridiculous, but it's helping a couple of small suppliers that I know otherwise are going to struggle. And it really benefits us in the longer term to have them there, because when we get back to, to full production, if they've disappeared, then we really are snookered on the, a couple of quite specific items. So I'd rather see them. I'm almost lending them money, if you like, in the short term to help them through. Then when we come out on the other side, Fingers crossed, it's a little bit of a gamble, but it means that they can continue and we've got the supply of the goods we need, which we'd struggle to find somewhere else. So the next, the next big communication challenge I imagine most businesses will be facing is after Sunday. So we've got the Prime Minister making an announcement Sunday evening, uh, I imagine quickly <laughs> followed by an announcement from the Chancellor about what might be the impact of the um, recovery plan on furlough, for example. So I guess you guys are all going to be involved, Simon and Rob, because you're leading businesses, Rob, because you're, uh, Andy, because you're trustee on a number of businesses, about another communication challenge then, which is how do you inspire, how do you build confidence um, in workers, in employee owners to return to the workplace? Um, I'd be interested in sort of thinking what would be, we've got about three minutes, I'm going to give you each about half a minute each to think what would your sort of key points be when you're thinking about that message? You're trying to get people back into the workplace you're trying to inspire them to have the confidence that they're going to be safe, that they've got a future. How do you do that and what are you going to be thinking about? Simon, I'm going to come to you first. Well, I guess um, to be sure it's a safe environment. We're already talking to employees. We're, we're, we're putting together a, you know, a rough plan that says this is how the, the, the workshop will look like. This is how we'll treat customers. This is how we'll treat you as employees and how we'll listen to you to, to make sure those plans go ahead smoothly. Um, I think they all are keen to get back to work. And that's because we've been open in the past. They know we have a profitable business and they know that the only way it's going to continue is by everybody getting back, getting their hands on the tools and making the business go forward. And they can also see, because I've been open about my deferred consideration, that, 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 you know, that will be paid off within a couple of years. And then the financial returns to the employees become significantly more than it is at the moment. And then all, they all know the figures, they know the profits, they know what's around the corner. They're already getting bonuses now, but they can see actually that uh, the, the picture ahead is rosy. Clearly the situation now is slightly different, but they're all keen to get back and, and to work hard and, and to make that a reality. So you're going to reassure them around safety. You're going to reassure them around finance. You're going to try and inspire them about the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Rob? Um, we have three categories of, of colleagues. One who are currently working and we're trying to deal with the um, social distancing rules and the best practice on those ones. 
got a group of colleagues who we stripped out because of the um, compulsory lockdown who will probably ret return back in some numbers back to the offices and the labs and other areas. For those, the message should be about when you're returning, what measures are in place, what changes of PPE or whatever it will be to actually make sure that they have a safe environment. And the third group of category of colleagues is, well, actually, you still need to work from home because we, can't, we haven't got the space to bring everybody in on within the regulations. So it's not that you're any less valuable to the company, it's just that it, operationally you make sense for that. So from a business, we need to communicate that, that big picture. From a teams and um, structural perspective, we need to make sure that each team understands why a colleague's been brought back or not. And if it's using a meeting room for an office space or a one-way system or toilets being moved around, they understand why it's been happening. Okay, so you're very much going to be focused on making sure they've got context and the big picture as part of that messaging to individuals. Yeah, your role within the business and how yeah. context fits, yeah. Brilliant. And Andy, have you got anything to add to that? Only a few bits. I think firstly, uh, I was involved in a call yesterday uh, with, with a company and it was essentially around, we're going to be going back to work, how are we going to do it? And what they wanted to relate to us as the trustees was the conversations they had with the employees around different ways of working. So it, it wasn't going to be a case of everybody going back to the office. They were going to continue to do work from home wherever that was possible. Uh, sadly, that won't be possible for all companies. And I think what I would say is for those where they do need physically to have people back into some kind of work environment, I think I'd probably be saying at this point, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter what you say, you will, be, you will be judged on your past actions. So if you've shown in the past that you've been a trustworthy employer and you've always done the right thing by the employees by giving them the right equipment, then people will know that they're going to go into a safe working environment. If you haven't been like that, then it's now going to be a case of proving through your actions that you are going to change the way you're going to look after people. And the, the, the one thing we can't avoid is everybody, I say everybody, the, a large number of people are going to be absolutely petrified about the prospect of going back. Just because the government may decide to release restrictions is not going to change the, uh, uh, the, the level of fear that I think uh, society generally holds at the moment. Yeah, thank you. So I think if I can just do and try and do a summary now of what I think we've just heard, uh, we started by Simon telling us that actually um, doing the right thing in the first place is the most important thing. And Andy, uh, I think, emphasised that as well by, you know, good businesses do good things. So if we work on the basis that most people listening to this webinar today are already in that space, they're in a good starting point. And in the crisis, what we heard was act quickly and consider the impacts and the impacts on employees and suppliers and customers. Communicate and communicate and communicate. I think that was the message from all three of you. Uh, Personalise it, reassure, communicate even when there's no good news was Andy's point. I think fairness came out loudly here. Um, communications around um, suppliers, for example, both Simon and Rob talking about how to deal with uh, suppliers, small suppliers, and, and those that were more uh, dependent on the business. Andy talking about how to deal fairly with employees. And then there was a big piece on care and the use of um, communications to communicate um, socially with employees, um, with their families, making sure that you involve them, um, the welfare calls that Andy mentioned. And as we look forward, um, we communicate what the next stages are. It's a balance between reassuring those employees, giving them the big picture and the context, but also inspiring them, wanting them to come back into the workplace. 
So thank you to the three of you um, for that very engaging conversation. I love my Thursday mornings. I have the opportunity to speak to people and to do this, which is a, a real pleasure and a privilege. Um, thank you for all of you who've joined us this morning. I hope you found that useful. Uh, the webinar will be recorded and you can listen again. Um, next week's webinar is um, going to be another exciting one. Um, before then, you can catch up with us um, anyway on the uh, EO communica communications during the week and on the hub. But next week's uh, webinar, as you can see a slide up there, is um, how do we start to plan for the future? And I'm delighted that we've got a cosmetics giant Lush and Gripple who are going to be joining us along with uh, Be The Business. So that'll be a, a fascinating insight. Um, it's same time, same place. We're actually extending it slightly because of the, the speakers we've got that morning. So um, do keep communicating with us. Do keep telling us your stories. Look out for the survey um, that is um, going to be in EO Communications next week from the CBI. Don't forget to fill that PPE survey in. Um, I hope you all have a nice, long, extended uh, weekend if you've got a bank holiday tomorrow and that you enjoy waving your flags. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.